Gracious God and Father, we are doing your will. By your grace, we are. We are tending to the public reading of scripture and to the proclamation, the heralding, the preaching of your word. And upon this occasion, O Lord, we pray that you would help us. Give us ears to hear. Look upon the dullness that you find in any of us, Lord, and show mercy. Unstop that which is clogged, straighten that which is crooked, soften that which is hard, brighten that which is dark. We pray especially for our young people, that they who have many years ahead of them would learn to benefit from your word sooner than we did. And Lord, we pray today would be a wonderful day for them in the word of God. Give us all the help we need, Lord. To your praise, to your glory, to your honor, through Jesus Christ, amen. Please be seated. As a Christian, you are left out. You are left out of many of the things other men are getting done in the world. But because you are bound to the risen Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ, by faith, you are not left out of what God is getting done in the world. I'm here to tell you today, beloved, if you are not left out of what God is getting done in the world, you will therefore necessarily be left out of what men are getting done. And what God is getting done in the world is far more important and far more lasting and far more satisfying and far more righteous and far more permanent and far more necessary than anything that men are getting done in the world. What God is doing in the world is taking a people for his name. That's how the Apostle James says it in verse 14. God is taking people who were once sexually immoral like you were, who were once idolaters like you were, who were once adulterers like you were, who were once greedy like you were, who were once drunkards like you were, who were once revilers like you were, who were once swindlers like you were, he is taking such people and he is washing, sanctifying, and justifying them in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, his son. Now, those people cannot stop talking about him. Have you met some of them? Those people cannot stop worshiping him, obeying him, communing with him. God has taken and continues to take a people for his name. Now, the world is always trying to mimic that. Have you noticed? The world is always trying to organize people for its own name, just like the Tower of Babel. With a devilish lie, the world will always tempt you to bring glory to your name by joining and exalting one or two or more of the world's great ambitions. Don't get left out. That is the seductive whisper of the world. 
Don't get left out. Come, make our political coalition, our political vision, make it be what you are all about. Let it consume and control you. You will make a name for yourself among men. Don't get left out. Come, make our sexual coalition, our sexual vision for society, make it be what you are all about. Let it consume you, control you, and you will make a name for yourself among men. Don't get left out. Come, make our coalition, our vision for this or for that. Make it be what you are all about. Let it consume you and control you, and then you will make a name for yourself among men. Satan wants you. This is his 24-7-365 work. He wants you to worship the creature and not the creator. He wants you to be filled not with the Holy Spirit, but with the spirit of the age, the zeitgeist, as the Germans call it. Satan wants you to love the world and the things of the world so that the love of the Father is not in you. But praise be to God. Praise be to God. We should stop and sing another hymn right now. Praise be to God that he does not act at the permission of Satan. God is visiting men, James says, He is visiting women, James says, who were once under Satan's power, and he is taking them for his own name. He is taking a people out of the world for his name. And because his name is the name above every name, and his name is eternal in power and glory, those whom he has taken are eternally blessed. Free from sin's condemnation, and from sin's dominion, free from the fads and the lusts and the impulses and the trends of a world that only wants to make a name for itself. You are free from that if God has taken you for his name. Beloved, when the Apostle James stood up to speak at the Jerusalem Council, he rose to celebrate what God is doing in the world. His word is the last word. He is the, perhaps the most well-known authority in Jerusalem, but not the only authority. But he is given the last word in our text to show how united the church in Jerusalem is around what Paul and Barnabas and Peter have all been saying. James did not rise to honor what men are doing. In fact, in verse 14, when James rises to speak, he summarizes what Peter has said, but he does it in a very peculiar way. James says, brothers, listen to me. Simon has related how God first visited the Gentiles. Do you see what James has just done? He puts Paul and Barnabas and Simon, who is Peter, He puts all of those pillars of the church in the background and says, God is going to and fro on the earth visiting Gentiles. God is visiting the very people whom the Jews 
would hardly ever visit. Where's Yahweh today? Galatia? Thyatira? He's in the house of a Samaritan woman. God is visiting the very people that the people who thought they were the most godly people belonging to God would never visit. Now this expression of verse 14, God visited, is an expression normally used in the Old Testament to explain God's covenant love and faithfulness to Israel. Exodus 4.31 says God visited Israel to deliver them from Egypt. Roman, or excuse me, Ruth 1.6 says God visited Judah to give them food after a hard famine. This is a technical Hebraic expression for the activity of Israel's God. But now James is saying God is also visiting the nations, non-Jewish people, Gentiles. God is visiting us pagans who have no physical affiliation with national Israel, no physical affiliation with Abraham, no physical affiliation with Moses. He is visiting us with the love and faithfulness of a covenant-keeping Redeemer. He is visiting us as if he has always had a covenant obligation to us too, which the Jews never thought he had. He is visiting us to take from among us a people for his name. Now that is the second expression in verse 14, describing what God is doing in the world. Taking from among us a people for his name. That first expression, God is visiting Gentiles. The second, God is taking Gentiles. That second expression, just like the first, is an expression from the Old Testament. The people for his name were always the Jews. But James, himself born a Jew, is showing the world that God calls Gentiles, that Gentiles are not excluded from God's plan to gather a special people. We too are a people for his name. Listen, what God said to Israel through Moses in Deuteronomy 7.6 can be applied just as much to you as a Gentile. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. So let's make sure we understand what James is doing in this speech. He is celebrating God's works in order to set deeply in the heart of the church that we belong to what God is doing in the world. We do not belong to what men are doing in the world. If you have always been a little impressed, a little attracted, a little looking over your shoulder at it to what God did in creating Israel— then you have all of the instincts to be enormously impressed by what he's doing in the church of Jesus Christ today. Because we are of the same people. We are of the same God. We are the true Israel of God. 
So, our belonging to God is not because of our national history. It took a long time for the Jews to learn this lesson. Our belonging to God is not because of our national history, which means we do not need to be consumed or controlled by the ambitions of our national history in order to belong to God. No, in fact, to be taken as God's people means we will always disappoint with a holy disappointment other groups who want us to exclusively be their people. Are you tracking with me? Some of the grossest idolatry in the history of the world is because of a blood and soil view of this natural life. That blood and soil could bring about reconciliation to the favor of God. It's a damnable lie. And it is being defeated right before your eyes in Acts chapter 15, in this dispute between the Jews and the Gentiles over circumcision. Not even being born Jewish puts you in favor with God. What put you in favor with God was God's calling of you by grace and uniting you to his life through faith alone. And of course, there's a reason to be born Jewish in God's wonderful plan. Paul raises the same question in Romans chapter 2. What then is the value of being Jewish? And he answers it all. But he answers it in a way that will always disappoint anyone, Jew or Gentile, who wants to argue that they are They have been taken by God to be his people because of either blood or soil. Only that which is spirit is a child of God. Only that which is born from above is a child of God. The flesh is enmity with God, and it leads to a host of idolatry. There's another piece to this. Our belonging to God is not because of our personal family history either. We do not belong to God because we can trace our family back to a certain tribe of Israel or back to charter members on a church roll in Pennsylvania, even though I love that history. I'm reading a book right now about it. Yes, I'm reading a book about Presbyterian church minutes from 1776. But there were men and women who needed to learn this lesson that you're learning right now. And they were born to Presbyterians. Our belonging to God is not because of our personal family history. We do not belong to God because of a tracing we can do, which means we do not need to be consumed or controlled by our family history to belong to God. In fact, to be taken as God's people means we will always disappoint any earthly family members who want us to exclusively be their people. Jesus makes this clear in Matthew 10, which is a passage I will soon be preaching on about the sword that he has put in the world by his own will to divide the most intimate family relations to teach the world what the new birth really is. So the best thing that we can do for our national relations and our family relations, God himself has already done it. 
He has made us his people. That's the best thing. He has united us to Christ, whose kingdom is not of this world. He has visited us and taken us. Our attachment to the name of Christ means we have now many detachments among men. It is by this holy detachment that our national relations and our family relations discover that the name of God, the name put on you in your baptism, that name is the name that now defines you forevermore. And it's a wonderful intrusion into their conscience, into their affections. This is God's will. Now, James has more to say. In fact, he has two more things to say. First, in verses 15 through 18 of our text, he is going to speak of the mission of Christ among the Gentiles. For it is Christ who has visited and taken us. Then secondly, in verses 19 through 21, James is going to speak of the holiness of Christ among the Gentiles. So James has two more things to say. First, about the mission of Christ among the Gentiles and about the holiness of Christ among the Gentiles. So look first at James in verse 15. He brings forward a witness. He brings forward a witness from among the prophets of ancient Israel who confirms that what James is saying is true. His witness, the prophet Amos, foretold that it was God's will and God's plan to include many Gentiles in his covenant of redemption. Amos will prove that the salvation of Gentiles was not an afterthought. They always belonged to the covenant of grace. So in the next three verses, James lets his witness speak. Verse 16, 17, 18. And in the first part of the quote from Amos 9, the Lord makes a promise that only Christ fulfills. The promise is that after a long season of exile, a long season of desperation in Israel, a long season of misery due to sin, the Lord, Yahweh, he will graciously return to his people. Look at the text. He will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. Now, the tent of David means the kingdom of God under the custody of Israel. It is called a tent for several reasons, but mainly it is called a tent here by Amos to speak of its lowly condition at the time, its weakness, its feebleness. How many of you are ready to move permanently into a tent? That is one of the points here. It's not the only reason it's called a tent, but it's especially called a tent for that purpose, to fit its condition upon the advent of Yahweh to rebuild it. It is frail. It's in a state of humiliation. It is in ruins. The spiritual kingdom of God, under the stewardship of Israel, had, at the time of Christ's coming, fallen into gross neglect and gross decay. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the leaders of the church, had corrupted its doctrine, corrupted its worship, corrupted its love. They allowed many heirs into the life of the kingdom, which God had never commanded, and they rotted the place out. There remained only a few persons at the time of a true faith, of a true hope. Anna, Simeon, Zacharias, 
Zechariah, excuse me, Elizabeth, his wife, Joseph, Mary, very few believers on the day that Christ was born. But even so, the Lord promises through Amos, around 800 BC, he promises that he would come. He promised to return, to rebuild, to restore, and he would not wait until they rebuilt it. He would not wait until they had restored it and then show up and approve of their work. No, no, that would never have happened if he waited until they did it. He would mete out his blessing, says Amos, on his people, not according to their deserving. He would mete out his blessings according to his promise, according to his grace, according to his steadfast love. So when the Lord comes, he doesn't stand outside Jerusalem shouting at his people to get their act together. Instead, what does he do? We are unpacking this Amos prophecy. When the Lord comes, he enters the tent of David by putting on our own flesh. That's what Yahweh does. He puts on the flesh and blood of his people through incarnation, being born of the Virgin Mary. He takes all their sin. He takes all their corruption. He takes all of that and lets it fall upon himself. He lets it crush him, Isaiah 53. He lets the tent of David fall into death through his own flesh and blood, because death is what the tent of David deserves. He, Christ, bears the reproach of his people to the uttermost in the fallen tent of his body. He takes the curse which belongs to them, bears it himself on the tree, but he does all of this to raise it up again, to rebuild it, to restore it, And maybe the bells are going off in your head. John 2.19, Jesus speaking about the tent of his body, calling it a temple, said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. He has rebuilt the tent of David in his own person through a substitutionary death and a triumphant resurrection, not through the national might of Israel, No nation can build the kingdom of God. It has been built in the singular man, Jesus Christ. In his resurrection, Jesus Christ both cleanses and opens the kingdom of God to men in a way that is gracious and just, gracious and just, gracious and just, in a way that is both. He gives the life of God back to men. Because of sin, man had fallen from the life of God, right? Because of Christ, that life has been restored to sinners. Beloved, when you know that you have been taken from among the peoples of the world for the name of this God, no matter what is happening all around you, your kids may hate you, your boss may hate you, you may hate yourself, Your body may hate you. Everything could be falling down around you. But this right here is an eternal flame in the heart of the believer 
that you have been restored to the life of God through him who has rebuilt the tent of David. I can go to sleep when the whole world is in cacophony, a foot from my ear, because I know that nothing can remove me from the life of God any longer. Christ would have to fall from heaven, judged a sinner for that to happen. It will not happen. So he has come, and he has rebuilt through his resurrection the kingdom of God, the kingdom of life. Because of Christ, life has been restored to sinners. But which sinners? The Jews had an answer for that question. <laughs> what's, what's the Jewish answer in the days of the first century? Well, this, if, if the Messiah is going to restore the kingdom of David, it would only be for Jewish sinners. This is where verse 17 comes in. God's plan was never to limit the life of God just to the sinful people of Israel. God's plan, says Amos, was always to include sinful people from among the remnant of mankind. If there's any nation of the earth that doesn't want to seek life through this rebuilt tent of David, they are seeking death no matter what they tell you. There is no other way to life for the remnant of mankind but through this man who has rebuilt the tent of David. The resurrection of the Davidic king, Jesus, would throw wide open the doors of the kingdom to all nations and Gentiles would stream into it. Anyone not of Israel may also seek the Lord, Amos says, and be granted to enter into the life of God through Jesus Christ. But notice what it says in verse 17. It is not just because they were seeking that they enter the life of God, these Gentiles. It is also because they are called. Do you see those two words in, in verse 17? It's important we don't skip over those two words because they are included to keep, us, to keep us from lies. These two words keep us from lies of the devil that would end up making idolaters out of us. Verse 17 says, all may seek the Lord. That statement keeps us from Satan's lie that we only need to be born of a woman to enter the life of God. No, we must seek the Lord. We must turn away from seeking all the other things men seek in this present evil age, and we must seek the Lord. But there's another word in verse 17. It also says that the Gentiles who seek are those who are called. This statement keeps us from another demonic lie, the lie that we began seeking God because of our own wisdom, because of our own will. No, God must first call us. None seek unless they are called. All called will seek. These carefully placed truths here by the Spirit, through the prophet Amos, through the Apostle James, they are keeping us from making a name for ourselves even under the banner of Jesus. They put everything on the name of God 
God has done it. He made me to seek because he called me. Now, earlier I said James had two things to say. The first was about the mission of Christ among the Gentiles, verse 15 through 18. The second is about the holiness of Christ among the Gentiles. Now, in verse 19, James says it is his judgment that the apostles and elders should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. Not trouble them with what? The answer has already been given to us. Not trouble them with the law of Moses. Look back up to verse 5. The Pharisees are in the room during this Jerusalem council. The party of the Pharisees had said in verse 5, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. Now, it turns out that the Pharisees were quite wrong. And by the time this meeting ended, some of them were either among the most silent and they had been greatly sanctified for Christ, or some of them went out full of heat and bluster because they were proven wrong. But Peter says in verse 10, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? Peter's speaking about the law of Moses. The law of Moses has been an unbearable yoke to Israel. Beloved, regardless of how much you love the law of God, you have to be able to say that. You are not thinking like a Christian until you are able to say that. The law of Moses has been an unbearable yoke to Israel. Its rituals, its ceremonies, its washings, its feasts, its sacrificial system, it has been unbearable. Besides that, the law of Moses never reconciled anyone to the life of God anyway. Never. What Paul said about Jesus in Acts 13.38 underscores that point. Through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. The law of Moses could not justify any sinner with God. Neither the moral law could do so, nor the ceremonial law. Now, coming back to James, in 1519, James is saying, let's not press anything of the ceremonial law on these Gentiles. James is not going to have any concerns about the Gentiles learning and keeping the Ten Commandments. That's the moral law. That existed before Israel existed. That existed before Moses went up on top of Sinai, and that continues to exist after Israel ceases to exist as a nation. So James has no problem with the moral law. What he is saying in verse 19 now is let us not press anything of the ceremonial law, the rituals, the washings, the ceremonies, the feasts, the, the fasting. Let's press none of it on the Gentiles. Now this, hearing this, would have sent many Jewish believers in Christ into a seven-day vacation in their closet 
because it also was unbinding them with authority from the ceremonial law. Now, there are four things listed in James, in James's speech. He speaks in verse 20 that they should abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. <clears throat> These four things, they all together hold in one heap as the most common sins that the Gentiles trafficked in in their individual cities through the prevailing idolatry of common Gentile life. Gentiles were known for being the most loose and libertine on sexual morality in the world. You probably know some of the history of this. They also had temples for idol worship that were their local restaurants. If you wanted to go out for dinner and eat with fellow merchants, fellow politicians, you would first go and attend some kind of sacrifice or offering for your group. And then you would go into the basement of the temple and have your meal. Meat was scarce in the ancient world. But you know who had the best meat? The idolatrous temples of the Gentile worlds. So the strangling, the blood, the idolatry, and even the sexual immorality, it all is a Rubik's cube of corruption that was part of the common way of life of the Gentiles. What James is saying here is that those whom God has taken to be a people for his name from among the Gentiles, their lives will be seriously disrupted by their need to step out of all of these practices and the derivatives of these practices that they kept up with their fellow idolaters in their home cities. It was often the case that the Corinthian Christians, whom Paul wrote extensively to about those four things that James just mentioned, the Corinthian Christians thought that they could go and eat these meals at these temples and it would cause them no harm because they believed in their heart that Jesus was the Christ. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul says, no, I will not have you keep fellowship with demons. And Paul, by simply writing that to them, is giving them an enormous disruption to their cultural life. And beloved, that disruption is on all of you. If you have been taken from out of the world to be a people who belong to the name of Yahweh through his son, Jesus Christ, you are called to abstain from all the idolatries of your neighbors. And as we're going to see next Lord's Day, where I'm going to preach an entire sermon on idolatry, we're going to see that modern idolatry is thriving all around you. 
And it is thriving most particularly because it is not encased in stone statues or carved wooden stumps. It is encased in ideologies and in fashions of mind that surround the the American West. But here's the good news, and I want to end today on good news. Being visited by God, being called by God, being taken from among the peoples of the earth to be his own treasured possession automatically means your life among men will be seriously disrupted. If you want a taste of it, go read the seven letters to the seven churches in the book of Revelation. But here's the point. Your association and your service to the idols of the nations is now broken. You now see all of those things as the counterfeit gods that they are. But the strength of your abstinence, listen now, the strength of your abstinence, the strength of your withdrawal from them is not going to be in your duty to withdraw. There's no strength in the duty. There's no strength in what you have to do. Where is the strength, beloved? Do you see how the Holy Spirit has framed this passage? The strength is in what God has done in the world, in taking you and rebuilding the kingdom of God and letting you in, reconciling you to the life of God. The strength is knowing that you have been taken and made through Christ's death and resurrection a people for God. So your strength, is to, your strength to abstain is in the light and the life that now lives in your soul the risen Savior God. You do not belong to those who exist to make a name for themselves. You belong now to the one who is taking you for his name. Let us pray. Gracious God, we thank you and we praise you for rebuilding the tent of David, for restoring the kingdom of God, through your own Son. We pray, O God, that you would set strong and deep in the heart of every believer that this is the most important thing about our life, not our sports, not our money, not our retirement, not our leisure, not our entertainment, not our looks, not our family, not our own wife, not our husband, but this, what you have done, not what we are doing. Oh, Lord, forgive us for how often we have been attracted to the idea of making a name for ourselves by worshiping the creation. Persuade us that what you have done is the most important thing about our life. And as we are persuaded, oh, Lord, we pray that you would clear our vision, cleanse our heart, to see the absurdities of continuing to serve the counterfeit gods of our neighbors and being of no use to them because we have become like them. Oh, Lord, strengthen our hearts, we pray, with the kingdom of life that has been restored through the king of life who has been raised up to your right hand. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.